Hello, this is Eden on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. Welcome back to my show, Garden of Eden. It's Garden of Eden and I'm your host. I talk about what I like most. Garden of Eden. Today is Kit McCormick, former MIHS English teacher slash faculty member. She's full of wisdom, humor, knowledge, and wit. Thank you so much for joining me, Ms. McCormick. It's lovely to be here. Oh my gosh, it's such a pleasure to be talking with you. You're such a fascinating person, and I would assume that your personality comes from, in part at least, from your upbringing. And so what, like, what is your background? What's, what's important to know? So I know it sounds like I'm writing a spy novel when I say my dad was in the CIA, but my dad was in the CIA. So um, when I was born, we moved to Japan for three years. And apparently my first language was Japanese and I have no Japanese in my repertoire. How irritating is that? Wow. And then we came back to the States and my father, who was a real adventurous type, answered an ad in a magazine mm -hmm. and it didn't say CIA, but apparently that's what it was. And they flew him to Washington, D.C. and hired him. Mm -hmm. And So I don't know how much you know about the Vietnam War, but there's a little country next to Vietnam called Laos. And um, there's a supply trail that runs through Laos and the North Vietnamese were using that. And so we lived right off the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Southern Laos. I didn't know my father was in the CIA at the time. Yeah, I thought he was an airline pilot for a non-existent airline called Air America, which Mel Gibson made a comedy movie about. Uh, <laughs> which is really strange <laughs> so you lived in in Laos but when did you come back to the states and where did you get your education I came back to the states in junior high and my parents divorced my mom didn't much care for Southeast Asia or my mm -hmm. dad apparently <laughs> and, um, yes. so my poor mother it's the early 70s right and she has four teenagers one year apart, and we were very bad. Um, <laughs> she was a single mom trying to make it. And so we, you know, re-enrolled in school. She found a house. I got good grades in school, but I dropped out of high school oh. um, two months before graduation. And I turned- why is that? because um, I turned 18 so I could <laughs> fair fair yeah so on March 16th I left high school then I did a series of really bad jobs the really best of which was A&W root beer and they told me that they thought I had real management possibility mm -hmm. and it occurred to me oh my god this is my life. <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> so I went back and got a GED. Then I went to college. 
the Evergreen State College, it's in Olympia. At the time, it was a real hippie school. Mm. And I think it might still be a real hippie school. So I went there and what I loved about it was you didn't have to, you didn't have to take any requirements. You could take whatever you wanted and you get enough credits and you graduate. So that's what I did. And all I did was read and talk about reading. Mm. And so I loved it. Okay. So you had this path where, where you decided to try this management thing at AWS. And then you were like, no, not going to do management, got your GED, went to college. What did you do after with your degree? And then what led you to becoming a teacher? After I left college, I graduated. And of course, I have a degree in English, which is useless, right? <laughs> so um, I worked at JCPenney in Olympia in the credit and catalog department, mostly ordering curtains. So I have a really vast knowledge of the various parts of curtainry. Um, Yeah, yeah. And that was also a dead end, but I was in love at the time and living with this guy named Dan. Mm -hmm. And Dan was a sound engineer and he wanted to go to LA to make it big, right? So we got into our Volkswagen bug and drove to LA, but we never got there. Uh, (laughs) Where did you end up? We got as far as San Francisco. And so in San Francisco, somehow I got a job in a law firm that was called Morrison Forrester. And they had two giant, like 40 floor towers down in the financial district, businessy, right? And that also was not a real good fit for me. And then I saw an ad in the newspaper, because back in the day, that's how you found jobs. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was to be a counselor in a group home for teens. And these are teens who had gotten in trouble, or their parents mostly had gotten in trouble, or they had been abused or neglected. And it said that it paid a thousand bucks a month. And you needed a car and a college diploma. And I had both of those. Uh And my car was a $275 new Volkswagen bug. And so I got a job working in group homes. I Uh had zero experience, but that's when I started working with teens. And so was this job at this group home kind of a coincidental, this is a way to make money. I have the qualifications. I'm going to try this out. Or do you think that you maybe envisioned a career in working with kids or teaching or? I had not envisioned a career working with kids or teaching. I did it because it was a job that required a college diploma. So I thought that was sort of classy. Yeah. Also, you know, I was kind of a hippie do-gooder, blah, blah, blah. I'd Mm -hmm. much rather work helping kids than in some big corporate law firm. Yeah. Um, But I did not know when I started how to help kids. I think somewhere there in the first few days, within three hours of being alone with the kids, I think I had three on house restriction and three had run away. Uh Maybe one had climbed out the window. It was pretty tragic, my initial (laughs) foray. Um, 
And then you just start to learn as you go along. Probably the most important thing I learned there and used later in teaching was don't ever back a kid into a corner. <laughs> just give him a choice and leave. That was helpful my whole time teaching. I don't know if you remember, kids would say to me in class, do we have to do this, McCormick? And I'd say, no, all you have to do is die. (laughs) But I'm never going to tell a teenager or really anyone they have to do something, you Mm know. Um, Once I learned that in group homes, I had a lot more power. Well, I mean, I can imagine that your skills in work, like social work, would translate into a classroom environment in super interesting ways. But first, before hearing that, I'm curious even how you made the transition from being a social worker to being an educator and ending up in Seattle. Right. So I fell in love with a guy who worked at the group home Mm -hmm. and I left Dan behind. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Oh, so I worked, it's called Frontline, interestingly enough, like Mm -hmm. you're in the trenches. And then I got promoted to supervisor there. The guy I fell in love with, he was already a supervisor. He eventually became the boss of the whole agency. His name's Dave. He's Mm -hmm. my husband, by the way. Oh, okay. So Dave worked out. Dave worked out. Absolutely. So I got really burned out eventually you just get burned out working with kids who you really have to work at relationships, right? That was kind of always a lovely thing about teaching is even though there were some kids who were like, oh, I hate teachers. You know, most kids are all excited. Here's the first day of school, new teacher. They're willing to give you a break, right? And group home kids, a lot of them were pissed. And who can blame them, right? Um, And so I got burned out. And Dave, my husband, pretty much fired me (laughs) and said, you're burned out. And I said, oh, yes, I am. So he fired me and I said, well, what should I do? (laughs) At this point, I'm like, I don't know, 30 something. And so I thought I'll go back to school and get a teaching credential. Now, luckily, Dave and I had just gotten married. Mm -hmm. So he fired me and then supported me for a year (laughs) while I got my teaching credential. I didn't have any burning desire to be an English teacher at all. I just kind of thought, all right, I know how to work with kids and I have an English degree, so I could do this. But I mean, it seems somehow to have stuck. You talk about working at AWS, then JCPenney with curtains, then going into this social work and kind of um, going from one thing to another as opportunities come up, but teaching you stuck with it. Oh, yeah. Well, once I started teaching, it was clear that was it. And there were lots of different types of teaching. My first job, because I had worked with kids who were part of the system, my first job for about seven years was working. This was still in the Bay Area, just south of Oakland. I worked with kids who had been kicked out of school. Mm. And so it was called a continuation school. And it was 
hardcore gang central, right? Because it's the Bay Area in the 80s. It was intense. And I didn't just teach English. You kind of had kids coming and going. So I taught English, math, sex ed. At one point I taught tech, which luckily at the time wasn't very techy, right? Yeah. Um, Social studies. Yeah, I taught everything. Um, I mean, I think it's so interesting that you're playing off working with these probably, I assume if, if getting out of kicked out of school, probably very difficult to work with in some senses, at least. Um, what do you think you learned from them? And did you think of it as a job or did you think of it as like, wow, I'm really taking away things, things that I can use in my life from this? No, I thought of it as a job. Mm -hmm. Um, the things I took away were techniques, right? Mm -hmm. That I used the rest of my career, like in the group home, not pushing kids into a corner, Mm -hmm. giving kids choices, being willing to accept what a student was willing to give. Lots of times, that's it. That's all they had. They had one day a week, right? (laughs) And there were There were other things that were more important. So it always put education sort of in perspective. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I feel like I lost track of that sometimes when I was teaching, feeling like, oh, my class is the most important thing, or this is vital, and losing track of that idea that this is only a tiny bit of a student's life. Mm -hmm this little thing. And my perspective was it's, no, it's the whole thing because it was my whole life, right? Teaching English. So I had to be reminded throughout my career that sometimes this isn't the most important thing. Yeah. Well, I think the concept of putting things in perspective is is very interesting and difficult to do. And you've worked at, correct me if I'm wrong, you worked at Garfield, then Mount Sai, then Mercer Island. I worked at, um, it was called Bohannon Continuation. Mm -hmm. And um, you asked how I got to Seattle. When my father joined the CIA, the one place we stayed, we we lived in Renton um, before we went to Southeast Asia. And then when we came back from Southeast Asia, we moved to Redmond. So this was sort of my home base. Mm And my family was here. And so I persuaded my husband that it didn't rain much here. (laughs) Um, And I strategically planned our move for July 5th, because, you know, that's when the rain stops and the sun starts. (laughs) We moved here in uh, July 5th, I think 1993, maybe, Mm -hmm. Uh, 94, maybe. Anyway, so we moved up here and um, I immediately got a job at Cedarcrest out in Duval. Mm-hmm. And from Cedarcrest, I went to Mount Sai. Mm-hmm. And from Mount Sai, I went to Garfield. Mm-hmm. And from Garfield to Mercer Island. Ah, okay. And then I retired. I see. So in talking, I chatted with Mr. Goldhammer before this interview and he said, that you've worked in like every kind of educational environment with like all all different kinds of students. And even comparing like, 
socioeconomic status between schools, I assume that that would have an influence on like, um, even just like motivation, like ability, not motivation in what education means. Like on Mercer Island, people are so um, inclined to want to go to college and want to get good grades for college and be focused yeah. on like getting that grade for college. In From your experience, how would you compare and contrast the environments of the schools and how the, the external factors of like the demographics influence like the academic environment? Um, what I love about the schools is it doesn't matter where you are. There's crazy school spirit everywhere, <laughs> which I think is really funny. I was so not interested in that when I was in high school because, you know, I was a rebel. Mm -hmm. um, Mercer Island was the easiest teaching job I ever had because the kids were nice. There were all sorts of um, everything I needed was there. You need some books, you need a copy machine. Everything was easy. And mm -hmm. so all I had to do was focus on teaching. And the people I worked with were really nice. In terms of kids, the different places I've gone it seems to me at the heart of it, kids are all the same. People would say to me, oh, aren't kids getting worse? You know, I taught for 33 years and I thought, no, they're not getting worse at all. They're just fine. Mm -hmm. They're just wearing different clothes than they were, you know, 33 years ago. So at the heart of it, it seems to me like teenagers are are similar you know they're passionate they're funny interested in learning if the mm -hmm. topic interests them or if the teacher's interesting I think but I did see I saw that it was harder at some schools than others at Garfield there was a lot of separation between races and they were kind of trying to make that come together and there were all sorts of efforts to overcome that racial divide, but that was always something that was there. But something I loved about Garfield was because it was there, there was all this focus on social justice and mm -hmm. on making sure there was equal opportunity and looking at ways to even the playing field or even acknowledge that the playing field wasn't even because it's such a weird school. There are local kids from that area and those local kids are African-American for the most part. And then it was also a magnet school for all these AP types all over the Seattle school district, right? Yeah. So it was really interesting. And, and I'd teach classes with kids who had not been in the AP program who were struggling in school. So that was one type of class I'd teach there. And then all of a sudden, here I am with these AP kids who went to Ivy Leagues, you know, who went to Harvard, who went to Dartmouth. So at like Garfield in specific, you speak about social justice. How were you involved in the social justice scene there? And also, Golda Hammer mentioned a story about you standing up against a homophobic preacher and being outspoken in other ways. Um, can you tell me about some of those specific instances? Yeah, yeah. So I know it sounds like I moved schools all the time, right? But there was sort of a good reason for each move. And the first one, when I left Cedar Crest and went to Mount Sai, 
there were sort of two things. I'm crazy about my son, right? And we are very close. And he was going to go to Mount Sai. And I wanted to be a teacher where he was going. And he also, surprisingly enough, wanted me to be a teacher where he was going. So Cedar Crest had this thing called Senior Project. And kids were really doing amazing things. They'd have to write a paper and create some kind of thing and do a presentation. And eventually they absolutely watered it down. And I quit sort of in protest. It Mm -hmm. it felt like they were saying, you can't set the bar here because kids can't meet it. But all the kids had met the bar, Mm -hmm. except those who were, you know, out smoking pot 24-7 and weren't interested. So I left and I went to Mount Si. And Mount Si wasn't there very long, only four years. Both Goldhammer and I, we co-advised the GSA, the Gay Straight Alliance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a pretty small club. There were maybe 15 kids coming and going. And maybe the third, second year I was there, a guy came to speak and he's a former Seattle Seahawk. His name was Ken Hutchinson or Hutcherson. He came to speak and was supposed to be inspirational. And his whole talk was about how he used to hate white people, but he doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. And so sort of getting over hate. So I looked him up afterwards and it turns out he was a crazy anti-gay not just guy, but activist. His oh. congregation, which was huge, it was kind of a mega church, was anti-gay. He went to Microsoft board meetings and threatened to have all his congregants withdraw their money from Microsoft because they were supporting domestic partner rights. Just a crazy person. And also a member of this group called Watchmen on the Walls, which was awful. So anyway, I sent all that off to the principal and said, we should never have this person come here again. And the next year, two years later, he came and he came on Martin Luther King Day uh, to talk about equality. (laughs) So it's the same thing about how I used to hate white people and now I don't. So I'm skipping the assembly to grade papers like English teachers do. And one of my students from GSA called me and said, you'll never guess who's here. I said, are you kidding me? There might have been an F-bomb in there. Um, And so I went down, I was standing at the back of the auditorium and I yelled when he was done, something like, how can you talk about equality when you take the stand you do on gay rights, something. And I had to yell because I was, you know, he was at the front, I was at the back. And, um, oh, now I'm going to swear. And then the sweep hit the fan. Kids started booing, kids started clapping. The principal said, this assembly is now over. (laughs) Um, And so I went back to my classroom. I think within an hour, I got a call from the newspaper, The Stranger. Uh Uh-huh. And they said, um, was Ken Hutcherson talking at Mount Sai for Martin Luther King Day? And I said, uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and so they asked to talk to me and I said, no, 
I, I didn't think it was professional. I think within another hour or two, my principal was on TV saying how this teacher at his school was inappropriate, meaning me. So I called the stranger back and I said, <sighs> I'd be happy to give you an interview. Yeah. And so I did, and it just went crazy from there. There were kids protesting me, protesting my class, lots of kids saying I was pushing a political agenda. So anyway, um, it went nationwide. Gay rights was really in the forefront of the news then. This was before gay marriage. There was a couple right-wing groups. One made a little film about me that they aired about a white teacher attacking a black inspirational speaker on Martin Luther King Day. So they turned it into a racist thing. Everyone was sure that I was a lesbian. So there was all sorts of news coverage about the lesbian teacher pushing her agenda. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and eventually along came the day of silence. It's in April sometime, and it's a day that GSA encourages people to be silent all day in support yes. of kids who are gay or trans who can't sort of be out there in high school, right? Mm -hmm. So this symbolic thing. So Day of Silence is coming on, and Ken went on right-wing local talk show, and you know, he was big, a Seahawk, a big preacher. And he called upon his, oh, I forget what he called them, army of saints or prayers or something to circle Mount Sai on the day of silence. Mm. And so they all came out and tried to circle Mount Sai, but they didn't have enough people and there were news helicopters <laughs> overhead. <laughs> And uh, it really divided the school. Yeah. Um, and it just became clear I had to leave. I just had to leave. There wasn't going to be any coming together after all that. So when you think back on everything that happened and your decision to say something at the assembly, do you regret any of it? Or do you think that you made a positive change that needed to be said and that you you were simply standing up for something that you knew was right. I don't regret any of it, mm -hmm. not one little bit. <laughs> I still run into kids who say to me that mattered or, you know, whatever they said. And especially those kids in the GSA, right? Goldhammer and I are their advisors. These are gay kids or allies. Um, and to, to stand in an educational milieu and let a bigot espouse his idea about equality and to not protest is to say, that's, that's fine, <laughs> that's yeah. acceptable. You know, part of our job as teachers is to stand up when you, when you have to, when a kid's being hurt. And there were definitely kids being hurt was my thought. And, and so what was it like to go from so much controversy and, and chaos and 
transitioning into Garfield and then like acclimating to this new environment, did you feel like you, people knew where you had come from and that that influenced people's perception of you or was it a complete fresh start? No, I thought I had left it behind because Martin Luther King Day, that's in January, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a new school year, September later. But about a week after I got hired, I got a call from my principal at Garfield. And he said, mm-hmm. you want to tell me what's going on? <laughs> <And I> yeah. said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I explained it to him. And he, he asked me why I didn't tell him. And I said, because I thought it was over. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, oh, no, I've gotten lots of phone calls from Snoqualmie Valley where they're urging me not to hire you, blah, blah, blah. And once I told him the sit, she said, that's fine. And um, he was always supportive. It wasn't a problem, right? But people were aware. So you, you have, wow, there's just so much to tell about your story and so much to say. Something I find interesting is that the time period that you're working, especially in, in this social justice work, was in a time with probably, I assume, much less technology than exists today? Um, I think not so much at Garfield that, you know, I, when I think back, I think my first and second jobs, there wasn't much tech. And after that, internet was active all of that so well I guess this is kind of shifting gears but how how has technology changed the way that teaching happens and how did it influence the way that you taught and what did you think it was much more for the better or was there an advantage to teaching with less technology um for me Eden for the most part I I ran away from it <laughs> like a little fraidy cat. <laughs> I've never been well-versed. I don't think my teaching suffered because I wasn't very good at integrating tech. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that my strengths as a teacher had to do with relationships and person-to-person contact, that kind of thing, Yeah, humor, um, and that I love my subject and that my students could tell that. And so hopefully they got on board too. Um, And so I just reluctantly would accept whatever new thing they told me I had to use. Yeah, you know, I loved at Mercer Island. So remember that classroom we we're in? Oh yeah, into the, the hall there, and they sort of forgot to put one of those stupid TVs in there. Whatever that stupid new thing is, yes, you know that TV. I'm yeah, <laughs> but through my through my teaching, I've seen. I mean, it started with dittos, which you may not know, but you did a hand crank and they came out these blue copies that were still sort of wet and they smelled good. Um, And then there were, oh, we're gonna use film strips where you'd have this little, little like camera and you'd drag, literally drag the film through every time it went blip. Um, 
And I, I didn't ever see those adding to my teaching and, and it churned so often that I felt like I didn't have time to keep up. So uh -huh. mostly I just avoided. Now, having said that, I think there are teachers who do an awesome job with, oh, all their kids are on clickers in class and they can all like chime in at the same Yeah. You know, um, Alex is one guy I'm thinking of. He's a math teacher. What's Alex's last name? He's a real total dork, wears ties all the time. Love him. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. He's a, a real tech guy. Um, and then when the pandemic happened, and you know, at the time I was teaching two classes and mentoring the rest of the time, mentoring mm -hmm. other teachers. And I felt absolutely inadequate because, mm -hmm. because they needed, that's when you needed tech, right? Yeah. And I was not good at it and, and certainly not able to help others. Um, Whoa. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah. And is, is that, did you feel like you not being able to adapt as well to technology and also advise teachers as they were trying to adapt. Is that like the main reason why you left or was it kind of the time? It was kind of the time. Um, I think, I think you remember, I think it was the year I had you where my mom died and her mm -hmm. partner died and she had urged me before she died to retire, get out there. Uh. World. Um, and my husband had just retired. And uh -huh. so it was sort of in my, I had it in mind. Mm -hmm. And I was moving toward being a full-time mentor. Mm -hmm. That was my, supposed to be my job the following school year. And I didn't really want to be. My favorite yeah. part of teaching is, you know, teaching. <laughs> so, as you reflect back on like, being a teacher and working with so many kinds of kids, are there any like specific student experiences you had with students that stand out or memorable students that in some way influenced your life in a way that like was, was notable? And I'm sure that there were tons, but I'm talking maybe if there are specific ones that come to mind. Yeah, when I think back on changed my life, the kids who start to come to mind right away are group home kids, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, let me let me think about that. Yeah, there are, there are all sorts of students who live back here, kids at Bohannon at my first job who were all oh, facing the worst of circumstances in gangs, right? <laughs> or being surrounded by gangs and trying not to be in a gang. Dealing with violence. Um, the last year I was there, four kids died, two by gunshot. And these kids, the kids who made it through Bohannon and ended up graduating were so admirable. In fact, I just talked with one of them over Facebook, this kid, Chris, he said somehow I got him straightened up 
33 years ago. <laughs> he was in the army or the Navy for his whole career. And now he's retired and on to something else. And he's still friends with another kid in that class who's now a newspaper editor who also graduated. And I think they were my two graduates that year. That's how many people you would, wow. you would graduate, right? So just amazing. And then, and then some kids who were crazy, like there are very few kids that I haven't liked in my mm. career, but a couple were, were crazy, um, angry and meeting their parents and their families and realizing why and realizing I probably wasn't going to be able to change that. Uh -huh. Accepting it. Um, very few of those, which is good. I mean, when you consider, I don't know how many students I've taught, um, 150 a year for 33 years. Wow. Or I guess, yeah, about 150 a year for 33 years. 45. Yeah, 4,500 kids. Um, a lot of kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, here's a great memory I have of Mercer Island. Mm -hmm. And that's that, especially teaching AP, I think that sometimes AP students are really hard on an incoming teacher because AP students think they're all it, especially seniors, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And you come in and you're new and they've got this school down and they're gonna tell you how to run things. So I was completely prepared for that at Mercer Island. Uh -huh. And I came in and it was the opposite. I wow. have never met nicer students. Some student walked out maybe day five and said, how's it going, Ms. McCormick? Are you enjoying Mercer Island? And I thought, did a student just say that to me? Uh -huh. And the tendency at Mercer Island for students to walk out and say thank you as they're walking out of a class. Never seen it before at another school. And it happened all the time at Mercer Island. Yeah. Well, do you think that that tendency to be to be polite and caring and, and more considerate of like the surroundings and the teacher comes from the privilege of not having to focus on other things as much and having other things taking over your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think being polite is is a luxury right? But it's uh -huh. certainly a luxury I appreciate. Yeah. I'm thinking about if you're living hard scrabble, hand to mouth, most of the people you come in contact with are trying to jack you up. I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement right now. The interactions you have with authority are not pleasant. Are you going to have a problem with authority? You bet. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so I don't question that or resent it. Yeah. But as a teacher, you have to work a little harder when you're coming into a situation where the kids aren't just accepting and nice and they're just going to respect you because you're an authority figure. Where at Mercer Island, that was so easy. <laughs> yeah. I just think that this 
comparing contrasting thing between even the way that you are treated as a teacher because of the different priorities of students and different focuses of students and levels of privilege is so, so very interesting. And I'm wondering even if like, for example, students at Mercer Island complaining about schoolwork and things that they have to do and how they're so stressed and like emailing you for extensions on things when the life that they live is so different than the life of that, of that kid who who probably won't graduate high school, who has no parents at home and has to take care of their siblings. Did mm -hmm. you ever think when a student was talking to you maybe about, maybe complaining at Mercer Island, did you ever think back to those kids who would objectively had it so much worse? Or did you think, oh, well, this is their life and they don't, they are dealing with those other things and their problems are still their problems? Even, even further back from that, I think, I didn't run into it. I didn't run into kids feeling sorry for themselves uh, when I felt they didn't have the right to or, or taking advantage or mm -hmm. using some privilege. You know, I felt like the students I had at Mercer Island were pretty straight with me. And yes, also had the same heartaches, heartbreaks that <laughs> teenagers have all yeah. over. I mean, yeah. different, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, we've both seen Eden, I don't think wealth, and, and that's a lot of what separates Mercer Island from other places. Yeah. It doesn't lead to happiness. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at those front pages on the tabloids, <laughs> it seems like it, it just doesn't. So I'd, I'd hear stories before I came about privilege and um, I thought I might run into some real snobs mm -hmm. at Mercer Island to tell you the truth. To be honest, I think I had been on the island one time oh. um, before I came to Mercer Island to watch the Blue Angels. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and I had a total, you know, I, I had an idea in my mind. And I was so wrong. Kids were nice, polite, kind, did not take out their privilege. Not that I saw, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm also not the kind of teacher who gets sort of embroiled in, in her students' lives yeah. on a personal level. You know, there are some teachers who know who's going out with whom and that kind of yeah. thing. And I, I never had any idea of that. <laughs> well, I think this goes back to the idea you're talking about at the beginning about how everywhere you went, the students in essence seemed like the same. And I think that's, I, I even like, you can even probably tell by the questions I'm asking about trying to compare the privilege of Mercer Island. Like, mm -hmm. I have the predisposed idea that it's so snobby compared to everywhere else and that the kids are so much worse and that mm -hmm. we have it so good. Um, but I guess even the problems that kids face and the stresses that the kids face are different, like the pressure to get exactly. to succeed and pressure to go to college and get into that really good school. Exactly. And that schools your family. Yeah, for example, at Mercer Island, one of the things I noticed was that students really wanted A's. That yeah. was mm. really important. And I'm not much of an A kind of teacher. 
especially in AP. I gave my own son a B minus in honors English. <laughs> you know, so and and I I sort of have this idea that um, an A student is one who not only does all the work and and you know uh, on time all of that but an A student is one who has some kind of insight into literature which yeah. we may not all have right uh, it's just like I can't sink a basket um, a lot of students can't analyze a poem for the life of them <laughs> uh, yeah but but at Mercer Island there was a lot of pressure um, as though it's just A's and that's just not how I was used to yeah. teaching. And, and it's not like teachers sit around and think, I wonder what grade I'm going to get this student. You add them all up and at the end it comes up A's, B's, C's, right? Mm -hmm. But my scale or the way I added things up resulted in, in very few A's. Um, and I, I thought about that a bit when I was at Mercer Island. Does yeah. it matter? Should I ease up on this a little bit and stop being such a hard ass? Yeah, because grades, I mean, even to me, I've talked to you about grades before. I remember I went in and I, I think I had like a B plus, like an 89% in your class or something. And I was like, oh, I'm just so concerned about my grade. And you're like, yeah, B plus is really good. And I was like, <laughs> no. So I but, could, yeah. You know, that makes sense. It's our different perspectives because in, yeah. in my class a B plus is really good but lots of students at Mercer Island such as yourself nothing is okay but an A because yeah. you're working your butt off you know yeah I think even at the different schools that you've been at you've been pretty outspoken when it's necessary and um you you are very true to yourself are there things that you wish that you could do in a classroom environment, maybe curriculum wise or otherwise that you're restricted by because of like school rules? Are there things you think kids should know that should be incorporated into lessons that you aren't able to include? Um, and if so, what are, what are those things? For the most part, no. But um, when I was teaching at Mount Sai and I knew I was going to leave, uh, I love this beat poet named Allen Ginsberg. And he wrote a poem called Howl, which mm -hmm. is so not appropriate for high school. Yeah. But it's ridiculous because like 18 year olds haven't heard the F word, right? But there are worse words in Howl than the F word. And so I just went ahead and taught it because I knew I was leaving anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was my little bit of rebellion. <laughs> Let me tell you something interesting, and you might ask Goldhammer about this. Yeah. After that whole thing happened at Mount Sai, Goldhammer and I used to team teach. That is, we wouldn't teach together, but we were teaching the same class in separate classrooms, mm -hmm. and we'd do all our planning together, blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. So the next play we're going to teach is Antigone by Sophocles. Mm -hmm. And what she does is she engages in civil disobedience. And... We were so uh, kowtowed by that situation that we didn't teach it. 
we decided that we thought it might be seen as some sort of radical pushing our agenda. Mm. This is Sophocles. This is a a 2000 year old Greek drama. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think back on that and I don't think Eric and I have talked about it, but we both decided that it would be seen as some political move if we taught that next. So we didn't. Yeah. But no, the thing about English, which is cool, is really, you can teach whatever you want and you get away with it. There's so much stuff in Shakespeare. I don't know if you remember those terrible puns at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet about pushing maids to the wall and all this kind of stuff. And nobody even knows they're there, right? Nobody reads Shakespeare except teachers and students. Principals don't, (laughs) I don't think. So no, for the most part, I taught whatever I wanted. And and then I taught Howell. Okay, so it's, I do see that, especially in AP Lit this year, it's probably one of my favorite classes. I love it because there is a lot of like freedom within it. And Mm -hmm. I've written things this year that I'm actually proud of. And I found that in like other classes, like you do the assignment, you check the boxes, but I can actually get creative and get interested in what I'm writing. Good. In your experience, especially in terms of AP Lit because of that freedom, what would you say makes for the strongest writing? And have you ever had a student that, or students that surprise you in ways you didn't imagine would have happened in the way that they interpreted a work of literature or a poem or the style in which they wrote or the way that they approached assignments that you gave? Students astounded me all the time. So I will have, I've I've been teaching this poem for 10 years, 12 years, classroom discussions, all sorts of stuff. And then some kid would make a connection, would have some insight don't you think that ties into this line at the end? And I'd say, I'm so stupid. (laughs) Of course it does. Mm -hmm. And these are passages, I'm sure Goldhammer is doing a whole lot of what we've done together, right? Because we team planned AP a lot together too. But yes, kids would come up with insights all the time. And I had lots of kids in my career that were so much brighter than I am. (laughs) And um, I am great with that. (laughs) Um, There were some kids who were just Einsteins in terms of literary analysis. They would read something and get it and make connections that I had never made. So that was always awesome um, to see that. It it didn't make me feel useless. You know, the the deal about being a teacher is not that I have to know more than the kids or be smarter than them. It's that I have some techniques I can show them, which are pretty good. And so it, it helps them to hone their skills, but some had skills far beyond mine. So that was always awesome. And in terms of what makes good writing, because that was at the beginning of that question. Yeah. 
I think Goldhammer skipped Hamlet this year, didn't he? We had to skip Hamlet, yes. That's what I thought. So there's this gas bag in Hamlet named Polonius who's talking all the time. And in the middle of one of his way too long speeches, he says, brevity is the soul of wit. Uh, ironic. Um, and that was always my focus with writing. And, and you guys saw it in, in our class. It's like, you want to get all this crap out of here and say what you mean. And if you don't have anything to say yet, don't start writing yet. Mm. Now that's a problem on the AP exam in which I'd say to my kids, great, go ahead and just BS your way through that essay because it'll get you a four, right? Maybe even a five, <laughs> good for you. But kids would, you know, those big, when one considers the, just shut up and tell me what the thing means and why. Yeah. This is so hard because you've taught so many kids for so many years. So asking for these specific examples, I can imagine would be tough. So if you don't have one, that's totally okay. But do you have any like distinct moments of reading an essay about a text that you love or a poem you love or a work of literature that you love? And just being absolutely wowed. Maybe it made you cry or laugh so hard or yeah. you thought about yeah. it for a week after. And what and was yours? I don't have them here, right? Yeah. But I um, often would turn to my husband and read a sentence and say, a 17-year-old person wrote this. Yeah. <laughs> just be astounded. Mm -hmm. um, I learned things all the time. Um, and so that's part of what's great about teaching. I think if you let yourself, all my students know more than me about a whole lot of subjects. And so there's an opportunity to learn a lot. And mm -hmm. sometimes my students knew more about the books or poems I was teaching than I did. They yeah. knew something I didn't know. They yeah. saw something and they backed it up. You know, oh. they made connections. And I would say, wow, check that out. <laughs> yeah. So that was always a wonderful moment. It seems like so much, well, fun, no, I can imagine grading papers would get exhausting, but getting to read these like immaculate papers that have you thinking about something in a completely different way, even though you've read hundreds of papers on the same thing, that mm -hmm. I can imagine that moment would be epic. <laughs> yeah, I think the worst part of my career was papers, and here's why. Mm. Not because they're such a pain to read, not at all. You know, I go to the AP reading and read 1400 of them. Mm -hmm. But all I had to do at the end of that paper was give it a score. Yeah. So that's pretty easy. At the end of a student's paper, I have to tell them how to make it better. So the whole time I'm reading it, I'm engaging in not only 
this isn't quite right, but so what would make it right? Ah. Sometimes it has to do with ideas, sometimes with phrasing, sometimes with vocabulary. Yeah. It was, so your mind is, see what I'm doing with my mind right now? It's hard to keep your brain doing that for paper after paper. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I'd finish reading a paper and I'd think, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wow, and it really is paper after paper. Mm -hmm. That is a lot. Mm -hmm. Over the course of like teaching these lessons and, and giving these assignments and receiving all these papers, were you yourself also writing? Like, do you creatively write in your free time? No, I do not creatively write, but <laughs> to, um, to keep up with literary analysis and the process of writing, when I give my students in AP timed rights, uh -huh. um, I would do it too. Oh. So, mm -hmm. so creative writing, no. I, I am perhaps the worst poet in the history of mankind. Well, it's interesting to not to not creatively write, but um, your career is teaching it has been teaching it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but I do assume that you are a reader. Mm -hmm. If you and again, this might require some thinking. If you had to give a list of a, a few books, maybe that you think every person who's interested, like has to read. What would, mm -hmm. what would some of those books be? And maybe even poems too, or other short stories. Okay, now I'm looking over at my bookshelf. Okay, this is my bookcase behind us, as you can Ooh, see. Oh, wow. And what everyone has to read, huh? Yeah. I'm an atheist. I'm sort of a rabid atheist. And so I think it's important people read a book called The Poisonwood Bible mm -hmm. by Barbara Kingsolver. Mm -hmm. I think that every student should read the poem or my favorite poem in the world is um, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Mm -hmm. by we read that. that was like the most recent poem we read. I'm glad because this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Hasn't it felt like that? <laughs> yeah, that poem, I think, really speaks to our global pandemic. Yeah. Oh, that was a fun one. Mm-hmm. Grapes of Wrath. Ooh, Grapes of Wrath. Is Steinbeck? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Grapes of Wrath, the Poisonwood Bible. See, now I have to go over to the bookshelf. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking over here at the bookshelf. Ooh, Twain. <laughs> Maybe Mark Twain. No, I'm looking. I think people should read, not Brave New World, the other one, 1984. Oh my gosh. I, we, I read, that was my second book group book. I loved 1984. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to much more than just that time and place, right? But mm -hmm. uh, government and communication, the whole thing about changing the language and 
all of that. I actually um, wrote about that on my, for, on the like book of your choice AP question on the test this year. Did you? Yes, I did. What was the question? It was about when a character shows overconfidence and how that like affects the, the character and then the story as a whole. And I talked mm. about how Winston, is that the main character's name? Is that his name? Mm -hmm. Is overconfident in thinking that he can like overthrow the thought police and that he can join the revolution. Oh, yeah, and, like, and at the no, end, you weren't even close. There was so much you didn't know, and you really thought that you were onto something. So that's what I wrote about. He loved Big Brother. <laughs> and then in the end, he had, he had to succumb to Big Brother. So that's yeah. I loved 1984. I I love that book. Good. That's a good essay. I like that yeah, you wrote. It um. I'm still looking at my bookshelf, thinking really in the big scheme of things, there might not be that many books that are essential in the history of mankind. Okay. Oh, thank you. My husband's sitting here on the side listening <laughs> to this, and he just mentioned a book I love called A Confederacy of Dunces. What's it about? It's an um, anti-hero whose name is... Ignatius J. Riley, mm -hmm. and he um, lives in New Orleans and runs a hot dog cart and is bombastic and flatulent mm -hmm. and loves himself. Uh. <laughs> it's funny. It's tragic. The young man who wrote it wrote one novel, and then he killed himself, which Ooh. makes it enigmatic. Um, but it's a wonderful book, A Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah. And, and then if, if favorites are hard to come up with, what, what are you reading right now? Um, here's a funny thing. My husband and I were just talking. Since I've retired, I've read nothing. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What have, you been, what have you been doing then instead of reading? Oh, let me show you. It's so exciting. I'll just be back in camera in just a second. Okay, take your time. I seem to just not be wanting to use my um, head. So I'm Ooh. I'm embroidering Christmas stockings. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is intricate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm embroidering, I'm gardening, and my husband and I, um, we bought a van and we met some guy in Portland who lives in his van. Mm -hmm. Long story, but um, so this guy built our van out. And so we've taken lots of trips. So we went down to New Orleans, by the way, and I did see the statue in New Orleans of Ignatius J. Riley. Oh. Because uh, they have a little statue there of him. So yeah, we've been taking van trips. So. Um, last month we were down in the desert in Arizona for a month and we just camp off grid, you know, camp in the desert and explore stuff and cook. Well, he cooks. Um, and yeah. Wow. And I think. I, I really did write down the question, um, what do you think the meaning of life is? 
and shortly after realized maybe maybe you wouldn't have a super direct answer to that question. But I am curious looking big picture, especially after you've gone through this path of kind of at the beginning, jumping from thing to thing before landing on teaching, which you fell into the rhythm. And it feels like you kind of just go with what what feels right and what comes up as it does. What do you think your life purpose has been maybe hinting at the meaning of life if if you'd like to go there um in the past it's been teaching Mm -hmm. you know that felt very useful and i'm not sure what it what it is i think i'm still figuring that out right now i think we've all had some depression around this pandemic right and so my mom and her partner died that year that I had you as a student. And then I was the executor of both their estates. And so there was about a year of just chaos. They were pretty complex and um, kind of crazy. And that's actually why my husband ended up retiring because um, I was the executor means essentially he was the executor. Um, and so I thought I was getting over that and then along came the pandemic and then on one of our first big van trips we drove down to Louisiana to visit my sister and her husband Mm -hmm. and um, my sister died unexpectedly the day before we got there Um, she was not sick Um, she was as young as I am Um, which might not look young to you, but it's pretty young, trust me. And so I always uh, taught a lot about death in AP because it turns out every piece of literature is about death, really. (laughs) And so I've just been thinking about that a lot lately, you know, trying to come to terms, being an atheist, I don't have sort of comfort in uh, they're in the afterlife or whatever. So just trying to determine what makes a life, what makes a life have, have meaning? How do you continue to have meaning? And it seems to me that it has to do with relationships. Um, yeah. Well, and if you, if you think the purpose of life is relationships, then you definitely have fulfilled your purpose in 4,500 kids. <laughs> and I bet hundreds and hundreds who will remember you as one of their favorite teachers for forever. Like that's such an immediate impact that you can have through teaching. And I think that's so valuable and so cool. I do too. And thank you. Yeah. I'm kind of with you on that. So yeah, I'm at a place where I'm kind of trying to figure things out right now. Yeah. Um, and you did ask me what I'm reading right now. And so I just thought I'd be honest about that. I, I am reading a nonfiction book about Mormonism. Oh, so you are reading a book. Mm-hmm. And I am, I am fascinated by other people's religious beliefs, mm-hmm. although I'm not religious myself. And if you mention me and Mormons to Goldhammer, he'll just start laughing <laughs> because I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> uh-huh. Why is that? Why, what fascinates you so much about other religions? 
I guess, are you religious, Eden? I wouldn't consider myself to be particularly particularly religious. I wouldn't okay. want to go as far as to say atheist because I'm, I would say I fall more in the agnostic category, but it also interests me a lot. Okay. So I find it just wild, all the different stories that exist around creation, death, mm -hmm. the meaning of life, and they are so fantastical. And I believe that Christianity benefits from 2,000 years of history. Yeah, we can believe that 2,000 years ago, somebody walked on water because that was a long time ago, right, where maybe miracles happened. Yeah. But the thing that gets me about Mormonism is it's very recent. We're talking 1860. And Joseph Smith found some plates and put on some special glasses and oh. um, a religion was born. And they're so wholesome as a group of people. I think I got into it at Mount Si. There's a very large Mormon population there. A lot of the students were Mormons. And yeah, I, I keep looking for how, how do people wholly buy this, right? How do they believe with all their hearts that this is true? And um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, I was watching a documentary on the Amish yesterday and their <laughs> roots in the Reformation. Mm -hmm. um so yeah i'm fascinated by religion it is pretty crazy to think about how wholeheartedly people can believe a certain thing especially when you're like me or you and you, you don't experience that correct did, yeah. did you come from a, an atheist family or did you grow up with religion and then decided my parents to pretended to be religious when we were young mm -hmm. but then my mom came clean <laughs> and, um, and I didn't really have a relationship with my dad after the divorce. So that was a long time ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think he was sort of pseudo Catholic. Um, he'd send out emails of angels and stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah. So you've kind of gotten to decide for yourself what you want to, to believe. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. chose atheism. Mm hmm um i didn't choose it oh, I don't, yeah i think it chose me yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe that's a better way to say it because believe me if god came down you know on a beam of light from on high and there was jesus and maybe even joseph smith and all sorts of stuff i'd get religion right away yeah i'm not an idiot but you need to see the proof Yes. Well, that, I think that's very fair. Um, and I have two more questions because I know, oh, I've held you for so long, but you are just so interesting to talk to. Um, <laughs> one is you seem to be very, very full of wisdom, just absolutely brimming with it. And you have so much to say <laughs> on any question that's asked. Are there tokens of advice that you give to students regularly things that you tell people that you, you think are, are important to know that you've learned throughout your being um, that you would like to tell our listeners? Wow, tokens of advice. 
my husband saying, all you need to do is die. <laughs> my token of advice, and this is especially for students at Mercer Island, mm. is they should do something just a little bit wrong sometimes, mm. just a little bad. Yeah. Yeah, do, do something a little bad or blow something off or take a chill pill. <laughs> I, I really think, uh, you know, I think, oh, my life has been absolutely successful, right? Yeah. I'm a high school dropout <laughs> who went yeah. to a pretty, now I'm gonna swear again, the college, Evergreen, <laughs> right? And everything has worked out just fine. <laughs> yeah, it really has. I, I really think that there, that earlier I was saying the students hadn't changed and their personalities to me seem not to have. Um, but I do think the world around students has changed. And um, there's this crazy pressure to go to college, to succeed, to get straight A's, not just to go to college, to go to Ivy, right? Um, it's easy to say to students, oh, take it easy, ignore that. But I realize that the whole bar has been raised in an unfortunate way. But I, I want students to know it's okay if you're not at the tippy top of that, because things are going to work out just fine as long as you have friends and, and are a nice person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it, that advice is definitely advice I, I could I could take. Mm -hmm. something wrong mm -hmm. hard to get yourself to um yeah I mean I've had students who have never skipped a class seriously <laughs> Eden are you one of them I'm not one of those well okay. I would say I've definitely been but overall I think okay overall you've been a very good kid right <laughs> you have. a little too I think a little too good honestly yes, yes. Um, well, my last question for you is, what is your favorite word? <laughs> my favorite word is peach, but my least favorite word, which is more important, is moist. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, see, I don't like that. See that? Well, well, why is peach your favorite word? It's just lovely, and it appears in, of course, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Uh, do I dare eat the peach? Do I dare eat a peach? Yeah, mm -hmm. shall I part my hair behind? Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's it's lovely sounding, isn't it? It is you lovely. Another great sounding word, dulcimer. Dulcimer. What does that mean? Did we learn that? I feel like we learned that one in your class. Did we? I don't, I don't recall, but I know I've heard it and I don't know it's where else. Instrument, a dulcimer, and it also means sweet or light. Mm. How do you use that in a sentence? Yeah, dulce. Well, uh, for the instrument, I would say I was playing a dulcimer. Mm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it was a, what would you say? It was a dulcimer, Scott, I don't know. Let's, that'll be our challenge for today. How are we going to use the word dulcimer? We have to use the word dulcimer in a sentence. I'll use it today and see if anybody notices. And do not use moist. I absolutely will not use the word moist. 
And that comes from a student, one more vignette that I had at Mount Si, who was a Mormon, uh-huh. and just a lovely, lovely girl, Kirsten. And she kept in her wallet a folded up piece of paper on which she would record words that were disgusting and she didn't ever want to hear again. Mm-hmm. And somebody used the word moist in class. And I still remember reaching <laughs> and recording this word <laughs> and saying, no, no, never. Oh she my gosh. An English teacher. <laughs> I love that. It's a gross word. It really is. As Ms. Mills well knew. Yes. Um, well, uh, I have to ask if you have anything else you would like to expand on that we touched on earlier or anything else you would like to say before we end off. I don't think so, except that I, I, I no, I do have something to say. I hope that the students at Mount Sai, when they go back next year, appreciate what we never what we never knew we had before the pandemic. That, uh, did I say Mount Si, Mercer Island? It's so nice that there's a place where people can go and you see friends every day and you gather and you eat and you learn things and you laugh. And yeah, there's a lot of painful stuff, but turns out, wow, we missed that. <laughs> Seriously. You know? Yeah. And- but we're getting vaccinated. We're seeing the return to normalcy, slow mm-hmm. and steady. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As exciting as ever. So just remembering to appreciate that, even though I realize there's there's a lot of pain in high school. <laughs> there's lots of fun too. Yes. Um. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of this epic interview. Uh, Ms. McCormick, thank you so, so much for joining me. Um, It has been an absolute pleasure. And this has been Eden on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge with my show, Garden of Eden, joined here with Kit McCormick, former MIHS employee and full of wisdom and life and wit and humor. And it was so fun having her today. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. 